We began in Isaiah 1. We've skipped a lot in between. Uh, and today what we're going to see is that Isaiah actually finishes his prophecy where he began. And that is with how we are to approach God. The whole prophecy is about the greatness and the glory of God. Therefore, Isaiah begins and ends with our proper attitude uh, of worship towards this holy God. And Isaiah's point is this, that God is worthy of our worship. Once again, uh, as always, in each chapter there is too much to cover, so we're just going to read a few verses and concentrate on those this morning. I want to read verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 66. And here's what it says. This is the very word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this morning, I and everyone in here would tremble at your word. I pray that we would not see these things as mere suggestions, that we would not marginalize your word, but that we would see that almighty God, creator of the heavens and the earth, sustainer of everything, is speaking, has spoken. And so give us ears to hear and then give us the ability to respond. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. What we do on Sunday morning at worship matters. And I think it matters a lot more than many of us may realize. What matters also is the attitude with which we come to worship God. On Sunday mornings, we gather to worship God. And before we talk about what the attitude should be, I want to talk about what worship is. I want to define what worship is. What you need to realize is this, is that you don't get to decide to worship. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what exactly we worship. Worship is ascribing worth to someone or something. It's what you spend most of your time thinking about, longing for, desiring. It could be a TV show. It could be a music star or a TV star. It could be an athlete or a athletic team. It could be beauty. It could be power. It could be fame. It could be anything. I know I've shared this story before, but I had a friend in uh, St. Louis, and she had this room. We went over to her house one day, and she had this room, which was dedicated to the St. Louis Cardinals baseball team. It was about a 12 by 12 foot room, and it was covered from wall, uh, wall to wall, floor to ceiling, with um, pictures, signed autographs, jerseys, baseballs, bats. It even had a section of the seats that they had uh, throughout the year after the old stadium got torn down and the new stadium was built. Whether she realized it or not, she worshipped 
the Cardinals. Okay, she wept when they lost. She wept with them, and she rejoiced with them when they won. That is one example of how we can worship. But she's not alone in her worship of sports teams. Um, there is a lot of worship that goes on, especially this time of the year with the NFL playoffs, right? If your team is still in it, uh, which probably not, uh, there's only two teams left, there's a lot of worship that goes on. There's a lot of anticipation that goes on. There's a lot of longing to see these games. That's another form of worship. Another example might be a young girl or a young boy who if you walked into their room, they just have their room plastered with the latest maybe movie star or, or this rock band or whatever it is, and they bought all of their music. They have all of their movies. They, they are willing to empty their bank accounts out to, to go to this concert or that concert or to see them. That is a form of worship. And we could go on and on, and we could talk about all of the idols, the things that we worship in our lives. I want to be careful to say that there's nothing wrong with appreciating music and, and liking this particular band or, or this particular athletic team, but it's like, are you obsessed? Are they what takes precedent in your life? The problem with worship of these things is found in the words of the novelist David Foster Wallace. Not long before his suicide, he addressed the 2005 graduating class at Kenya College with these words. Listen to them, quote, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type uh, thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you and your own fear. Worship intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious truth about these forms of worship is they are unconscious. They are default settings, end quote. Worship is what gets you up in the morning. It's what you desire more than anything else. It gives meaning to your life. You know when someone is worshiping, because it's written all over them, so to speak. By the same token, you can spot a false worshiper from a mile away. When I was in high school uh, in the late 80s, um, I had switched schools and I was uh, trying to get into the in crowd in this new school. And the friends that I wanted to hang around with, the cool kids, all liked the band U2. And they would camp out, no joke, for three days to get concert tickets. They had all their music, they had their shirts and everything. I tried my best to like this band. I listened to their music and I just never got into it. Like I, I tried to fake it and I could not. I would have taken Journey or Air Supply over U2 every day of the week. I was a false worshiper. Or think about that 
guy who is a fanatic, let's say about the Dallas Cowboys. He paints his face on game day. He's got the jersey on. He's always talking about the Cowboys. And then he's got his girlfriend who he's trying to incorporate into that culture. And so she comes to the big game, right? And she's got the stars on her cheeks and she's got a jersey on and yet she can't name one of the Dallas Cowboy players or even a position that they play, right? She is a false worshiper, right? She's got the drapings on that says, hey, I'm a Cowboys fan, but she knows nothing about them. But false worship is not limited to rock bands or sports teams. It is also towards those who are attending church. I want you to hold your finger in Isaiah 66. We'll return to that and turn over to Isaiah chapter 1, and we will see a classic example of false worship. Isaiah chapter 1. This is God speaking, and he's condemning his people. And I want you to listen very carefully. Here's what he says in Isaiah 1, beginning in verse 11 down through 15. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assemblies. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. In this passage, God is talking about things that he hates. Things like sacrifices, Sabbaths, incense, festivals, praying, and other things. And if you notice, these are all things that God commanded the people to do. These are all things that God set up, and now he is saying, I hate them. And why does he hate them? Because his people were just going through the motions. There was no heart in it. There was no love for God. They had forgotten the whole purpose for these festivals, for the sacrificial system. They didn't give a rip about God. They were just going and doing their religious duties. They put on their jerseys, if you will. They painted their face with God's colors, if you will. And then they sat and they watched the game, but their minds were a million miles away. And now in Isaiah 66, we see God saying the exact same thing, closing out this prophecy, saying the exact same thing using different words. In verse 3, here's what he says. He's talking about their worship. He who slaughters an ox. That was a command given by God, okay? He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. That was a gross violation of the law of God worthy of death. He goes on to say this, he who sacrifices a lamb, once again, something that was commanded by God, is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who 
presents a grain offering. Again, something commanded by God. It's like one who offers pig's blood. Once again, a gross violation of the command of God and worthy of death. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. Once again, things commanded by God, and he's saying, I hate them. And then he says this, these have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. Once again, the people had forgotten the purpose of these sacrifices and these festivals. They just showed up. They had no love for God, no passion for his holiness. They were worshiping something, and they thought it was God. And God says, no, it's not. I know that you think you're worshiping me. I know that you mentioned my name, but you are not worshiping me. This kind of worship has seeped into our Sunday worship here in America as well. Every Sunday, even in Christian churches, people come, and most are on time, and they sing when they're told to sing. They bow their heads when we're supposed to pray. They stand up when we're supposed to. They hear the words that are spoken. And they may even give from time to time or regularly, but their minds are a thousand miles away from God. God is the least of their desires during that hour and a half. They're thinking about the dinner that they're going to have, or they're thinking about the big game that's on, or uh, all that they have to do this week. I got so much to do, or the boy that they like, or the girl that they like. And there are a dozen other things that are in their minds before God. They can fool everyone around them because no one can see their thoughts just their actions. Let me just stop here for a moment to make sure that you're not hearing what I'm not saying. We all come to church with distractions, okay? Some of you are probably thinking about your meal later on today. You're like, oh, is Jason saying that I'm not a Christian? No, that is not what I'm saying. We all come to church with distractions. Satan is the master of distractions, it's not wrong to, to, to want to see the football game or the soccer game or the baseball game. There's nothing wrong with that. What I'm asking you is this. If you are consistently coming to church and God is not even in your thoughts and you're just thinking, oh, this, this song is kind of cool, but you are not, you're not worshiping God. You're not blown away, blown away by him. You're not just taken by him. And he is your greatest desire. And you come week after week and you just do stand up, sit down, sing. And then you need to examine yourself and say, have I, do I really worship God the way that he has called me to worship? Do I really desire him? Because I'm telling you this, if you're conscious of this, then God would rather you never utter another word in song, never utter another word in prayer, never give a single dime if you're just putting on a show for everyone else to see. God says, don't bother. Don't bother doing that. So what kind of worshipers is God looking for? Well, Isaiah answers this question in verses 1 and 2. Notice how he begins this uh, verse 1. Thus says the Lord. Let me stop there. This phrase appears over and over and over and over again in the Bible, and you might just pause for, uh, you might just breeze over that without thinking about it. But I would caution you not to do that. Here's what he is saying. 
God is getting ready to speak, so shut your mouth. Okay? God is getting ready to speak. And there is nothing that you could say that even comes close to comparing to the importance about what God is about to say. So just shut up and sit down. That's the nice way of saying it, right? I am about to speak. God is speaking. And the word of God is such a huge theme in the Old and New Testament. We see it all over. In fact, the very first book of the Bible, the very first chapter, the very first verses, Genesis 1, says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the earth. And it says this, And God said, Let there be light. And guess what happened? There was light. And then that phrase, God said, is repeated eight more times throughout that chapter. And what we see is that when God speaks, things happen. He speaks, and light appears at his command. He speaks, and the waters appear. He speaks, and birds, and fish, and plants, and animals, and humans come into existence at the very word of God. He speaks and things happen. God's words contain power. Psalm 33, verse 6, confirms this. It says this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. And then verse 9 says this, For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. And then our response comes in between. In verse 8 it says this, Because of that, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Regarding the power of his word, we saw a couple weeks ago when we looked at Isaiah 55 that God said that my word will not return to me void without accomplishing the exact purpose for which I sent it. I sent it out and it will do what I commanded it to do. In both the Old and the New Testament, we read this phrase, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? every word that comes out of the mouth of God. When Jesus, God in the flesh, comes on the scene in John 1, 1, what is he referred to as? The Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you flip all the way to the last book of the Bible, Revelation Jesus being described in all of his glory. In Revelation 19, 13, it says this, He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and, by the, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Jesus is called the Word of God. The writer of Hebrews says that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces right into the division of soul and spirit. The psalmist said that the word converts the soul. And Paul affirms this in Romans 10, where he talks about faith in God, which saves us, comes from the hearing of the word. David devoted 176 verses of Psalm 119, all talking about how great the word of the Lord is and how much he loved it. And when Jesus was fighting the temptation against the devil, the most powerful enemy in all of the world, what did he use to combat Satan? 
the word of God. It is written. And he commands us to do the same. And then Psalm 119, 9 asks this question, how, how shall a young man keep his way pure? And then answers it by saying, by keeping it according to what? Your word. And then he goes on to say this, your word have I hid in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Are you getting the picture of how important the word of God is? And we've only scratched the surface. One more, and then we'll move on. Psalm 138, to Listen to this. I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. You have exalted above all things your name and your word. Nothing is as important as the word of God. So let me return to a question I asked earlier. What kind of worshipers is God looking for? He answers that once again at the end of verse 2. We know that he has no regard for people who are just going through the motions. Don't bother. He has no regard for those who are just paying him lip service. He doesn't care about the size of your church building or how beautiful your church building is. He doesn't care about those things. So what is he looking for? Here's what he says. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God looks to those who tremble at his word. Verse 5 repeats this when it says this. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Why does he look to those who tremble at his word? And by the way, the word look means to show regard for. So why does God show regard for those who tremble at his word? Because to tremble at his word means that you take it seriously. It means that you have faith in him. You have faith that he is who he says he is as revealed in his word and that he will do what he says he will do as revealed in his word. So when he says, you will die in your sins if you don't repent, you see those as not empty words, but you see those as a promise or a threat that judgment is coming if you don't turn. Our words can be weak, right? If one of you, if one of you was, was to get in a fight with me and I were to say, get out of here, if you were stronger than me, then you could resist, right? You say, no, I'm not going anywhere. You can go, <laughs> right? And there's nothing I could do about that. However, when God speaks in that final judgment, when everyone is standing before Jesus and Jesus looks at those false worshipers who said, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do all these things? And when Jesus says, depart from me for I never knew you, no one can say, nah, I heard what you said, but I'm going to stay right here. I definitely don't want to go there. So I'm going to stay here. No, you will have no choice. There will be no resistance whatsoever. God is infinitely more powerful than you and I. His words carry creative power, and they also can carry destructive power as well. And they cannot be ignored. This is why you and I tremble at his word. He is not joking, and his words cannot be altered. God loves when we tremble at his word, not because God wants to terrify us and scare us. It's because God wants us to revere him. 
And you've heard me talk about this before. But it's like standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, right? If you've ever been there, you notice that there's not a lot of guardrails. And there's a 100 to 200 foot drop in some places. And when you're standing there, there is a terror, right? There is a trembling that takes place there. It's not because you're afraid that the Grand Canyon is going to come and swallow you. It's a, you, you have this fear that if you're not careful, if you don't tread carefully, you could die. But at the same time, you are absolutely blown away by the beauty of this. You're like, this is the most amazing thing that I've ever seen. That's the kind of trembling that we're talking about. That fear that if you don't tread lightly, you could be in danger. But at the same time, you're like thinking, God, wow, you are amazing. That's, that's what it means to fear God. That's what it means to revere him, to tremble at his word. And to those who tremble at his word, you know what he does? He speaks tenderly to them. He speaks words of encouragement and hope to them. He speaks words of strength and assurance. He says things like this, fear not, for I am with you. He says stuff like this, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I will never leave you or forsake you. A thousand will fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. I will have mercy on you. I will blot out all of your sin. I will come and I will give you a new name. And I will come and I will take you to where I am so that you will be with me always. I will wipe away every tear. There will be no more pain or disease. And I will be your God, and you will be my people. And just like the warnings he gives are sure and unalterable, so are these precious promises. They are unalterable. But our great enemy, Satan, who is real, tries to convince us that God is not serious, that God's word does not need to be trembled at. You don't need to, God doesn't really mean that. You don't need to take it seriously. He did this to our first parents, right? He convinced Adam and Eve in the garden. God came to them, put them in this perfect environment, and said, eat from every tree in the garden except for the one in the middle. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then Satan came along, and what was the first thing he said? Has God really said, I know that these are the words that came out of his mouth, but he didn't really mean that. He wasn't really serious. You don't really need to tremble at that warning. He's not going to do anything if you disobey this. Adam and Eve did not believe God. They did not tremble at his word, and they died spiritually right there on the spot, and then they plunged the whole world into sin. All the disease and sickness and depression and natural disasters and everything that we experience is because they did not tremble at the word of God. So what does this mean for us today? I hope the message is clear, that this Bible that you have in your hand or on your phone, or whatever it is, is the very word of God. Is the very word of God. And God, in his amazing grace, had those words of warning and promise written down for us so that we could have them forever. Remember, those of you who are a little bit older, how you used to get directions when you got lost, right? 
you would search even, either desperately for a payphone, which you probably didn't find, or you found someone who looked kind of semi-smart, right? And you stopped them and said, uh, excuse me, sir. Um, it would probably be a woman because guys don't know how to go, where to go. But anyway, <laughs> excuse me, ma'am. Can you tell me how to get to Bee Tree Park? And then they would say, yes. So what you want to do is you want to go straight down this road through two stop signs. At the third stop sign, you want to turn right. You're going to go take that road down to Telegraph Road. It's going to wind around. And the whole time you're thinking, you lost me at the second stop sign, right? I have no idea what you're saying. It's so wonderful when they say, when they look at you and they're thinking, you're not getting this, are you? Hey, let, you have a piece of paper. Let me write it down for you. And they write it down. And that piece of paper gets you to where you wanted to go, right? It helps you to avoid getting lost in places like downtown Detroit or East St. Louis, which may have happened to me a time or two, right? The same is true of the Word of God. Because of this messed up world that we live in, we just have to throw our hands up in the air and say, what do I do? How in the world do I find myself, find my way out of this mess that I'm in. And God is there to say, let me tell you. In fact, let me write it down for you. I will tell you exactly what you need to avoid and how to avoid it. And I will tell you exactly how you can come safely home with me one day. This book is written for fallen sinners, which means that it's written for every human being in this world. There are just two categories of people in this world. Just two. Two categories of people in this church and in the entire world. Those who tremble at the word of God and those who don't tremble at the word of God. Those who tremble are those who have heard his declaration that everyone is a sinner and in rebellion against him. They understand that they are a sinner deserving his full wrath poured out on them. They realize also that he has made a provision for them, a way that they can avoid that wrath by believing in his son, his son Jesus. Who is he? He's the one who came down as God in the flesh, fully human, fully God. And he lived the perfect life that none of us could live, but all of us were required to live. And then in the unthinkable, he was punished for every lie that I ever told every lustful thought that I ever told, every sin that I would ever do, Jesus was punished for all of that. The person who trembles at God's word understands that, and not only that, but they demonstrate that they take God's word seriously by embracing Jesus as their only Savior and by submitting to him as their Lord and Master. What they do is they present all of the members of their body to Jesus— they submit to him. They say, here are my eyes. Here are my ears and my mouth and my hands and my feet. And they say, in a sense, I have used these things to my own selfish purposes, and I am in a huge mess right now. And so now I yield them up to you. You tell me what I should look at and what I should not look at. You, God, tell me what I should listen to and what I should not listen to. You tell me what I should say and what I should not say. You tell me where I should go and what I should do. You take control of my entire body. These are the people who, have re who God has regard for because they tremble at his word. They take it seriously. 
Isaiah 66, verse 22 and 23 tell us, tells us what's in store for these people. He says this, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring in your name remain. From new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. A place with God in the new recreated world is what is in store for those who tremble at his word. A place that is free from sin and all of the effects of sin. The diseases that you're experiencing right now are completely eliminated in the new heaven and the new earth. The depression that you're experiencing is completely eliminated. No natural disasters, no crime is in this new recreated world. And plus, on top of it all, we get a new name. A name that will endure forever. We talked about last week how our names are messed up, marred by sin. But we have that new name given to us by God. But for those who do not tremble at his word, those who have heard the facts that, they had, that they're a sinner, that they're in rebellion against God, and they disregard his warnings and his offering of forgiveness and salvation, they will die an eternal death. They will die an eternal death. Isaiah 66 verse 24 shows us this. Here's what it says. And they, that's actually talking about the ones who tremble at his word, they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. One commentator that I read said it's almost as if there is a cemetery next to the city of God to which we will look upon those who have trembled at his word and will say, yep, I remember him. I told him about Jesus and he laughed at me. Yep, I remember her. I told her about Jesus and she said, get out of my face and stop shoving your religion down my throat. I don't need it. Obviously, this is talking about symbolic language, but it points to a reality that we all must realize that those who reject God and his way of salvation will die an eternal death in what the Bible calls hell or the lake of fire. They will not simply go out of existence. That would be nice, but they will not go out of, out of existence. They will live in an eternal conscious torment forever and ever away from the presence of God. And once again, as we talked about last week, the horror of hell is not the fire even though that's really, really bad, the horror of hell is the absence of God's loving, gracious presence. Never experiencing the one relationship that you were created to enjoy. So here's what I will say. Tremble now, and you will rejoice forever. Reject now, and you will be tormented forever. But the gospel is this, the good news is this, that God does not want you to be tormented. So he has provided a way for you to be right with him for everyone in this room today. And in his grace, he has written it down. You can open this book and read about his plan of salvation, how you can be right with God again and be with him forever. 
And so my encouragement to you today is this. If you haven't done so, embrace the God of this Bible. Embrace his way of salvation. Stop trying to do it yourself. Don't put it off. Talked about this a couple weeks ago. You may not get another opportunity. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we tremble. I know that a lot of these things in this word are hard to hear. But you are serious. Lord, you are serious about your holiness. You're serious about the effects of sin. You cannot overlook sin. You must deal with it. And so we see that you're serious. We see that you are a wrathful God, but we also see that you are a loving God, a gracious God, who when we sinned, you were not content to leave us in that sin, but you immediately put into motion a plan to bring us back to yourself. And so I pray that no one would leave this place without making that decision. And I pray that you, that we would enjoy the good things of this life, Lord, but that you would be the object of our joy and our satisfaction and our worship. And we just pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.